Hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast. I have just driven back. Show what I've realised. I've just driven back from Edinburgh, right, which is only an hour and 20 minutes, but my tolerance for driving has got less and less because I don't drive anymore. And it's so boring. Like, I, I can't understand why people like doing it. I would, this is very controversial and I'm sure literally no one agrees with me. I would rather spend twice as long on a train because you can actually do stuff. Like, even thinking. You can't even really think that much if you've got an idea. So, I take that back. You can think when you're driving. And I always come up with great ideas when I'm driving. (laughs) I mean, great is, you know, subjective, right? But ideas when I'm driving. And then I'm like, how do I write them down? Do I have to make a voice note of myself while I'm driving? I don't know. It's It's just not practical. Whereas... When you have ideas when you're on the train, you can note them down. And if you're like me, you have an idea and then within a minute, you've completely forgotten that idea. And it might have been the best idea ever. I mean, realistically, probably not. But I often forget things, hence why I'm obsessed with writing notes. Anyway, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah, the other thing that happened was I don't think I've ever... No, this is quite bold because this has happened a few times. Um, I was very close to wetting myself, very close, but I'm happy to say I'm home and I made it to the bathroom so everyone can, um, um, yeah, appreciate that. Anyway, I am going to answer some questions, partly because I feel like I just wasted an hour and a half of time and I was like, well, I have to do something before I endeth the day of work today. I did have a really, really good meeting with Amelia in Edinburgh about EIQ stuff and not to be one of those people, but wow, guys, like big, big things are coming, but genuinely big things are coming. The amount of work it's going to take scares me slightly, but that is balanced by how excited I am about it. And that's how I know it's the right thing to do. Okay, so before I get into some of the questions on the Q&A thread, one thing I did want to say, and I've written this in the post and I've shared it in the group as well, is that we had a group call last week and one woman was saying that she hadn't got round to starting yet because she felt a bit overwhelmed. Now, this is completely normal and I'm very glad that she obviously voiced that and reached out. And the reason I want to share this is because I'm sure she's not alone. I'm sure so many people will resonate with essentially thinking they could start something or trying to change behaviours or trying to diet, trying to exercise more, trying to lose fat, looking at their nutrition, all these things, and then become a bit overwhelmed and don't take action because they've got so many other things going on in their life. I totally understand that. So firstly, I want to say I cannot emphasise this enough. If at the moment you're doing nothing, then doing anything, doing literally anything more than what you're doing will get you results. Like it is one tiny step in the right direction. And that's not even, I mean, I say if you're doing nothing, then doing something is going to get you results. If you're doing nothing, then doing something is going to get you incredible results, like genuinely incredible. If you're someone who's doing no exercise and all you ever do is implement the morning routine, you are genuinely adding years of quality life to your lifespan. Like, that is phenomenal from five minutes in the morning. But it's the expectation of, I need to be doing everything perfectly, that whether you're conscious of it or not is stopping you take action. So that'd be the first thing. 
is can you just make one small change in line with your goals each day or like one small action maybe that's maybe you're like I feel quite overwhelmed by this all but I can improve my lunch I can make sure that I'm having protein at lunch and a veg serving at lunch okay that that's this week that's all I can manage fine this isn't a race and as much as like commit to six is a six-week program it's not really like the people that get real results that maintain those results normally stay for far longer than six weeks now and again you get people that are like no I just needed that kickstart and actually I've been able to implement that myself they are the exception not the rule right and if that's you freaking great and I'm glad that I could help you for six weeks but most people stay a hell of a lot longer and have much bigger impact and actually make it the last diet that they ever do or the last time they ever jump on something like they actually commit to making the change and they stay far longer so this isn't a race there are a few people that commented actually which was really useful one woman was saying how in the first like for the first six weeks exercise seemed like too much so all she did I say all like this is still a lot increased her steps started doing the morning routine started journaling and cleaned up her nutrition didn't track calories those were the things that she did started seeing results started feeling better built a bit of momentum now she's on committed she's going to start adding in exercise that's fine this is meant to be about meeting you where you are and then pushing forward a little bit now that also takes you accepting where you are and that maybe doing everything perfectly or doing everything to the t or trying to do diet exercise morning routine evening routine journaling or that maybe that is a bit too overwhelming so you pick a few of them that you think you can do and you start there and all we care about is you're making progress like the time is going to pass anyway you may as well be what like pushing towards that goal and if you can end each day just a little bit closer to that goal before you know it you'll look up and be like wow I've come so far and then the second thing I want to say about this is when people tell me that they feel overwhelmed or they feel like maybe they're not managing things or they're very stressed about things or they're being pulled in different directions I'm like this is why you need to get fit physically mentally emotionally like we look at all those aspects so physically fit quite an obvious one right realistically if you get the right dose of exercise exercise and training more should give you more energy not less it is literally building your capacity to deal with life and show up at your best and then when you think about the emotional side like we look at the journaling and how you talk to yourself and how you support yourself and how you like reflect and review on your day and learn from it moving forward how you respond to things instead of reacting to things like that's the emotional side of that and actually you can't show up at your at your best if you're not taking time for yourself right when I think about I don't know the like not that we're all Barack Obama right but say you're like one of the most important people in the world he still makes time to exercise because he knows that there's no way that you can make good decisions and be fit and be healthy and be of clear mind if you don't take care of yourself right like the whole put your own what is it gas mask it's not gas mask is it put your own oxygen mask on first before you put on somebody else's I know like for example for me a lot of people rely on me in various different ways right whether that's the coaches that work for me whether that's the coaches I mentor on AFM whether that's people on EIQ whether that's my direct clients whether it's people on commit to six or the EC method if I count up those numbers like there are thousands of people who rely on me to show up if I don't take care of myself, how on earth can I show up for them? 
And it's the same with you, right? If you're not fueling yourself, looking after yourself, looking, doing the things that you know will make you feel good and be happy and be healthy, then there's no way you can show up your best at work in a relationship with your partner, with your kids, with your family. Like, there's no way. So I think a lot of people see this the wrong way. Like, they're like, oh, diet and exercise is just another thing to add to my already very full plate of things that I have to do in my life. And I get that. But you need to see it the other way of like diet and exercise allows me to do all these incredible things and show up at my best. That's why I'm doing it. That's why I get to do it, not why I have to do it. And the way that you manage all of that and show up at your best is by fueling yourself, by increasing your fitness levels so you have the capacity to deal with more. That's not just about the gym, right? It's about all aspects of life. Even if you think about, even if you think about it on a physiological level, right? If you're starting and you're very unfit, then life, like normal life, what am I thinking of? Chores, daily living, whatever, like walking upstairs and stuff, that might tire you out. When you get fitter, that stuff becomes less tiring, right? You don't even really think about it. You're not like, oh my God, another set of stairs. You're just like, huh, yeah. You quite literally take it in your stride. But the fitter you are, the more that you're capable of dealing with things. And then when you lose unwanted fat, your life becomes easier as well. You're not carrying 20 pounds of fat up those stairs. You're fitter, you're healthier, you feel better, your clothes fit better. Even the little things like that, like especially at work or how you show up. So much is dependent on actually, you know, dressing nice, having things that fit you well. Like that impacts your mood your power stance, how you project yourself, how likely you are to share your opinion. And actually, and people often don't see this because there's a couple of steps between it, but like often fat loss and feeling better about yourself and looking better by your own, and that's perceived, right? Like you feel like you look better. I can give a shit what other people think. If I feel like I look better, I show up as more confident. And then I'm more likely to voice my opinion in a meeting and then that's more likely to be actioned and then people are more likely to pay attention to me and I'm more likely to get picked out of a crowd to be like Emma always contributes well let's put her on this panel oh let's give her this promotion or it's those kind of opportunities will open up to you when you start looking after yourself now it might seem like what so you're saying if I start going to the gym and eating better I'm going to get a promotion yeah a lot of the time yeah <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying or your kids are going to notice how different you are when you show up for them and how you're not as stressed and how you can start to reframe things and you see the positives and mum's less stressed and she doesn't get as angry and the time that we have with her is of a higher quality. And doing things like taking care of yourself, prioritising sleep, making sure you're fueling yourself properly and you're being a role model to your kids. Like your kids seeing you exercise, especially if you're like, yeah, do you know what? Sorry, I can't pick you up from your mate's house again at exactly this time because I'm exercising and that's a priority. And that's a priority for our whole family, for mum to get to exercise because it's important for health. That, like your kids seeing that and seeing you prioritise that, that's lifelong. That will impact them now and forever. And they're much more likely to do that when they have kids or when they have busy lives. They won't be like, oh, I'm really busy at work. I'll just not bother exercising. They'll be like, it's still important to do that. And I know I'm going to show up better tomorrow if I do. Wow. And I thought I was quite ranty on the, the call. That was a bit of a 
something I feel extremely passionate about. Anyway, the point of this is making even small changes consistently will give you more energy, more capacity to deal with more, not less. So don't think of it as adding something else to your plate. Think of it as like, if you want to play on that analogy, like building the plate even bigger so that you can deal with more. Okay, I'll get into a few questions now. So, okay, we've got one here. I heard from, I heard, sorry, I heard a personal trainer saying that you should not be running if your BMI is over 25 as you will destroy your knees. What are your thoughts on this? So they're not totally wrong. Um, there's a grain of truth in this in that if you weigh a lot, then you'll be putting a lot of pressure on your knees if you run, right? When you run, that's a, a huge amount of force that's going through in regards to impact. It doesn't mean that you can't run. It's just something to be aware of. So things that will help that are well-supported trainers, running on soft surfaces. So things like going for a run on primarily grass as opposed to running on the tarmac or the road or doing some other form of cardio until you lose some of the weight and then maybe starting more running. Now, there are literally countless people that have run with a high BMI and there are people who have probably injured themselves doing that but you can certainly mitigate the potential for that and I think it's quite short-sighted to say no one over the uh, oh who has a BMI of x should ever run and I would add to that that well actually it's kind of stupid because again it doesn't the, the whole issue with BMI is that it doesn't consider what that mass is made up of right so it might be that you've got a BMI of over 25 but you're a rugby player like is it okay to run Yes, it is. Or like you're very athletic or you've got a lot of muscle mass. Or there's a bit of a balance of like, yeah, you have got some extra fat, but you're also very conditioned and very fit and you can absolutely run. Now, when you get to like the obese stages, because like 25 is like the cutoff for being overweight. And when you think that, you know, if you were 24.9, then um, you'd be in a healthy range. But if you're 25, then you're not. Like it's a little bit arbitrary, right? And I think that's quite a low cutoff for saying something is like uh distinct what am I trying to say as clear cut as do not run over this BMI but if you have a lot of excess body fat then yes it can be a lot of impact on your joints so I I don't know if that's what they were going for okay next question do darker mornings and evenings impact energy levels I've started taking vitamin d supplement as I read it's good in winter months but is there anything else I can do to increase energy levels yeah do you know what? It's really hard. Like I got home at half five and it was like pitch black. I know the clocks have just changed, but it's not fun. Like, especially if you live in Scotland. Now I know it's only a little bit darker than England, but it's uh, it's a significant amount, I think. And in the, the depths of winter, the sun goes at 3 p.m. What the hell? Like that's wild. So does it impact energy levels? Yeah, I think it does. I know I certainly have more energy in the sun, even if it's more like perceived, right? So a few things that you can do, you can get those sad lamps. So they they will just kind of recreate as much as you can, a similar vibe to sunlight. I think, and I've never really used this, but some of my mates have, and they've said it's good, that when you can, you can kind of set your alarm to like sunrise, so it like starts to slowly increase the brightness of your room. That's quite a nice way to wake up. I think I'd certainly find it harder to wake up in winter. 
Like when you're trying to get up at five and it's pitch black, and even when you leave the house a couple of hours later, it's still pitch black. And then if you're someone who's got a nine to five, and I don't know, you go to the gym before, you literally leave the house in the dark and come back in the dark. Like that's not fun, but it is the way it is, right? So definitely with the vitamin D, maybe with the sad lamp, there's not really that much else that you need to do or that you can do. Um, but yeah, I, I think it does impact energy levels. What I will say is that usually once you're up, like try and break down the getting up. Cause I know what it's like, it's cold, it's dark. Your alarm goes off, you're still tired and you're like, I could just snooze this. Try and just think about getting up for 10 minutes. Not even that, like get up and make your coffee and be like, if I still wanna go back to bed, I will. Normally by the time you've got up, you're fine. It's just that first like five minutes is hard. If you can push through that and like mind over matter, then once you're up, it's a bit easier. Okay, Amanda. Sorry if this is a bit off topic, but I wanted to ask how you learned to podcast. Did you go on a course? You do so many and so well. Oh, that's very nice. I'm thinking of starting one at work and need an idiot's guide on how to get going. We'll totally understand if you can't cover this question. Of course I can. So like with anything, you start shit. Like I am willing to bet. In fact, I'm not even willing to bet. Like I know that my first, honestly, 100 podcasts weren't very good. And I think a lot of people try and like they kind of convince themselves that they can wait until they're good at something to start. Now, I work with a lot of coaches on AFM now and with a lot of them, I get them to podcast for various reasons. One, I think it connects with potential clients really well. I think you can elaborate on ideas more than short form content on Instagram. And I think you can really help people change their mindset around things and deliver better coaching and better just content in general. Two, it makes you become a better public speaker. Three, it gets you really good at talking about what you do. And four, I don't have a four, but I just think podcast. Actually, four is I think podcasts are such a unique way of delivering a message in our generation or like in our, not generation, but like in the way that we consume social media, right? So if I'd released this as a reel or... I mean, a very long reel, but like even like a YouTube video or some kind of video format or written format, even if it was the same information, one, I can't get my personality across in written. And on the video, I'm I'm asking for your full attention, right? So whether it's written or video, I'm like, you need to give me your full attention to ingest this information. Now, As you're listening to this, just have a little think about what you're doing, because I'm willing to bet none of you are just sitting, staring at Spotify while you're listening to this. Like literally no one listening will be doing that. You'll be doing something. You'll be out for a walk or you'll be driving or you'll be, I don't know, at work or you can literally be doing whatever you want. And I'm only asking for like half your attention. So I'm kind of there in the background. I'm not asking for your full attention. Now, what you'll notice from like a marketing perspective and attention perspective is we become less and less likely to give more of our attention, right? If I had this all written out as an article, you'd probably open it and be like, wow, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) Maybe I'll save that to read later or most likely I'll just not even open the email. Now, if I'd had it as a video, again, it's like if I'm asking for your full attention, I need to make it short, sharp, snappy. Like most people have to like 
capture people into their reels within the first three seconds or you lose their attention span and all this. And then you end up with shitty content because it needs to be three seconds and you don't have a chance to elaborate on anything or say who might benefit from that and who might not and when you would suggest this and when you wouldn't and why this is useful to you in this situation but not in that situation and all the stuff that you can do on a podcast. Well, I've gone a little bit off topic. Okay, how do I start? How did I start? It is the easiest thing you'll ever do. You literally just, I have some free recording software here. I do have a microphone, but it's in my room and I'm not sitting in my room. So I'm just talking to my laptop. Like, is the audio quality amazing? No, but it's imperfect action, right? And you will probably have to start like Amanda. Your first podcast won't be that good. Neither will your second, neither will your third. Maybe at 20, you'll start to get into a bit of a routine and a flow of it. But like with anything, you have to accept you don't start, you don't start good. Is that good English? I don't know. But you're not going to start amazing at what you do. Now, I'm sure there's loads that I could learn about podcasting and I'm sure I could get better at it. And obviously everyone has their own styles. I don't edit, shockingly. I'm sure everyone is completely shocked by that. But you can get into the editing of it and you can have specific ways of doing it or have guests on, etc, etc. You might want to think about what is the point of this podcast? Like, is it one at work to show other people what you do at work or is it for your work or is it to share a certain idea? Or, you know, you should always think about what's the point of what I'm doing here. And then you can kind of work backwards from that. But my advice generally would be to start. And realise it probably won't be that good. But you have to start somewhere to get good. It's exactly the same as if a client's like. So I really want to do push-ups. But I can't do them yet. Okay. Let's start with what you can do. Instead of just hoping that one day you'll wake up. Being able to do a push-up. Or one day you'll wake up just really good at podcasting. Even though you've never practised it. Like that's not going to happen. You have to start probably shit. To get good. To then get great. To then get really great. Um, but if you have any questions specifically about that or how to do it, then just shoot me a message. Okay, Julia, does it matter if I snack rather than eat full meals? Sometimes my appetite isn't great and I find I do better with small meals slash snacks rather than a proper sit-down meal. I always snack mindfully, eat fruit, sugar snap peas. Oh my God, Julia, sugar snap peas. Unbelievable. Like, One of the most underrated, I just don't think they get enough credit for what they are. It's just very like crunchy, but watery, but like there's a bit of substance in there. They're good cooked. They're good not cooked. They're just, yeah, well done for sharing that. Carrot sticks, celery, can't get behind celery, sorry. Protein shakes, protein bars, protein yogurts, pouches, etc. Is this bad? Recovering from COVID and still not got much of an appetite. If you're recovering from COVID in this situation, fine. It's not the end of the world at all. Now, generally, I don't like people to snack. And it's generally for the reason that most people overeat when they're snacking. So having big meals where you sit down, where you eat mindfully, when you enjoy the meal, where you make it a bit of an occasion, a bit of a ritual, like you maybe have a meal with friends and you actually are there enjoying what you're doing and then in between those times you don't eat that is much that is what I would prefer now if you're looking for like what would happen on a physiological level if I snack a bit versus 
if I have bigger meals. Probably not a huge amount to the naked eye. As in, like, I don't think your physique would look that different if you were eating the same calories and macros. But what we do know happens is that you need to get about 20 grams of high-quality protein in order to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So that's one reason that having decent-sized meals based around protein is useful. You also don't want to snack on, like, small amounts of protein if you want to maximise the muscle protein synthesis response partly because there's a refractory period, right? So you want to stimulate it, and then you need the space of time for it to come back down to baseline, for it then to be stimulated again. And that's like two to three hours. So ideally, you'd space your meals out with at least two to three hours in between. And then finally, and this is more just like my belief, I I think the main benefit of not snacking is more habitual than anything. But I also think there's something to be said for periods of fasting, Now, don't misquote me on that. I'm not talking about, oh, Emma said fasting. Right, everyone must fast for 48 hours or only eat between certain windows. What I mean is the period of time before between your meals where you're not eating. Now, I think this is beneficial not only from a concentration standpoint of you're not always just sitting at your desk grazing and thinking about food, but also from a metabolic standpoint. So it's actually quite good to have periods of time where you're not constantly in a state of breaking down food. Actually, your your digestive system gets a bit of a rest and your metabolic control is probably better if you have meals and then spaces in between where you're not constantly spiking blood glucose, for example. So that's kind of the, the reason I don't love snacking. Saying that, if you're recovering from COVID and you're struggling to eat full meals, that's a different situation, right? And this is a short-term thing. Once you're recovered, you can go back to having bigger meals. So it's not a big deal short-term. Okay. Um, Adam Scott, I really struggle with what the fat doctor says on Instagram about weight set points and whether we should even be bothered trying to lose weight. I went into a hole and started questioning everything. So for those of you who don't know, this person isn't being mean and calling someone fat. This doctor describes himself as the fat doctor. And some reel has been going around recently where she's saying something like, in fact, I think she might be non-binary. So they are saying something, sorry about that. um, Like, even if you try to diet, even if you only eat lettuce, even if you run every day, you'll still regain the weight. That's science, that's fact. What they are alluding to here is the research that shows that most diets fail. Now, my counter to that is that most diets aren't supported. You know, like most people go on stupid yo-yo diets and they don't get the support and they, they're not looking for long-term solutions. They're like, oh, maybe I will eat. And she, do you know what? They are probably right. If you just eat a piece of lettuce every day, then the likelihood is you're going to rebound because it's not sustainable, right? But it's very, very misleading and it's very misleading from a doctor and I'm surprised they've not been struck off because they're literally disputing that energy balance works. Like every single diet will fail. You cannot lose fat, so there's no point trying. And my issue with that is there are serious health consequences to storing too much body fat. And So even if you're like, I don't care how I look, I actually I really like looking fat that's fine but it still doesn't negate the complications of it right so you might say I really like always smelling like disgusting cigarettes 
and having to go out in the cold and always being a bit like smoky and spending all this money on cigarettes fine it doesn't negate the fact that they're still going to increase your risk of cancer you might be like i don't care about all those other negative side effects fine like you might say i don't care that i can't fit in the the seats on the tube by the way tiny i don't know how anyone who's even a normal size or like slightly larger can fit in them anyway you might say i don't care about all these other side effects of being overweight but it doesn't mean that you're gonna somehow then not get type 2 diabetes or not be at a higher risk of breast cancer and and uh, colorectal cancer and cardiovascular disease like well, these things are very real and there's a ton of data to back that up and that's my problem with a doctor saying that because diets do work like there's a ton of evidence for that as well and there's a ton of evidence for energy balance if you take in less energy than you expend like if they're then you will lose fat. Sorry, I got distracted by my own mind. If their point was correct, no one would have ever starved, right? If it was so true that if you eat too little, somehow you'll just start storing body fat. And I think that isn't really their argument. I think their argument is that everyone will always rebound and your body will push towards a set point. And they're not, I mean, they are completely wrong in that, but set point theory has some merit. So your body will start pushing back if you get too lean. And when I say pushing back, it's not that it's like, oh, let's store these magic calories that you haven't consumed. It's like, oh, you don't have much body fat. I'm going to try and make you eat more by increasing hunger. And I'm going to try and conserve as much energy by reducing your expenditure. So I'm going to make you feel more fatigued. I'm going to slow down things like fidgeting. I might even shut down your menstrual cycle because that's a high energy process. And I'm going to try and preserve as much energy as possible. Now, again, if you were still only eating, I don't know, like 500 calories and it was way below your basal metabolic rate, you would still lose weight, but you would end up starving. There's no way around that. It's just that it's going to push you to not end up there, right? So your hunger is going to increase and your movement is going to reduce. And that's more what set point is about. Like your body will defend a set point, but it's nowhere near as high as what some people suggest. Now, and I'm not going to go too much into this, but hunger can be dysregulated when you're very obese. So as an example of this, one of the hunger hormones, leptin, if you have too much of this chronically, i.e. someone who's been obese for years, you become less and less sensitive to it. Which means that like if you're, lean, fit, healthy weight range, and your leptin levels are high, that signifies, because leptin is primarily released by fat tissue, that signifies, hey, there's quite a lot of energy here. You probably don't need that higher level of hunger. Now, if you can't hear that signal to turn down hunger because, hey, there's plenty of stored energy, aka body fat here, then you're going to continue to be hungry despite the fact that you have excess energy. That's where the problem is. And that's why, you know, a lot of very overweight people do experience high levels of hunger because they're not sensitive to leptin. Now, unfortunately, the way that you get through that is by becoming leaner and thus more sensitive to leptin. So that's why sometimes the first part of fat loss, if you're very overweight, can be hard because you, you have these elevated levels of hunger because your body's not reading your hunger signals particularly well. And that coincidentally, is where I do think that things like the quote-unquote skinny jab or 
medicines that will reduce appetite do come in handy. So I think for that specific group of people who are very overweight and have hunger dysregulation, even dampening their hunger for a period of time so they can lose some weight, become more sensitive to their own hunger signals, and then potentially continue weight loss without the medication, that could work very well. But it's a very distinct group of people. You know, I don't think it should be for lean people just to use whenever they because they think it's going to make fat loss a ton easier for them. Okay, only a few more. I can't believe I got this far down. I was just going to do one or two questions and mainly the rant. Okay, right here. It's the end of a terrible day. I've got a poorly toddler. I'm juggling work, so everything else has taken a back seat. However, still under calories, but also under veg and marginally under protein. Is it better to accept veg and protein under and stay under calories if not hungry? Or add in some extra to up protein and veg and go over calories. Am I overthinking this? Just about to head out for some steps in the spirit of imperfect action. Mega impressed with that. Well done. And I hope your toddler is feeling much better now. It sounds like you've done really well. So we did cover this on the group call, but I'll just recover it here. I would just be sensible with this, right? If you're like, oh, my calorie target's 1,600, I'm on 1,500 calories, I'm, I don't know, 10 grams under on protein, and I haven't had that much fruit and veg, I wouldn't worry about it. But what I would do is I wouldn't accept that and be like, oh, I'll just do that every day. I'd be like, right, how am I going to make sure I do hit protein tomorrow? And how am I going to make sure I do get my fruit and veg in tomorrow? Because if fat loss is the goal, calories are king, right? So you still, you want to be at your calorie target or maybe just slightly under and so you don't want to be like oh I'm at, I'm at my calorie target but I haven't hit my protein so I'll eat more protein probably not going to help you so as that one off I'd stick to calories but I wouldn't then be like I'll let myself do that all the time I make sure that I plan tomorrow and it sounds like today was a bit of a tough day right so hey you've not hit your targets exactly how do we make sure we, that we do that tomorrow as opposed to just thinking, oh, okay, Emma said it wasn't that important. Like They're both important, but if fat loss is the goal, then let's make sure we're hitting calories as a one-off and then think, how do I plan tomorrow to make sure that I hit both? Okay. Um, Caroline, I have previously done mainly cardio, spin and running. I enjoyed this type of exercise as the feeling slash endorphins that I got. I don't get the same feelings when I do resistance training. Will this feeling come as I lift heavier or is it a different physiological response? Hmm, it's a very good question. And most of the research does suggest that you get a bit more of an endorphin response, often from things like HIIT training. However, the way that I program the workouts, there is a bit of a circuit at the end and that tends to give you quite a good endorphin feeling. And I also don't mind if you're like, oh, do you know what? I really love spin and I get good endorphins off the back of it. Great. But resistance training has its own unique benefits. So we need to get in a mixture of both. So it's certainly not saying never do spin again or give up on spin. But you can get a bit of both. And I think what you will find is the kind of circuit finisher type thing at the end of the workouts will give you that bit of endorphins. But I know what you mean. I think it's a bit to do with like, being a little bit out of breath, having a little bit of lactic, feeling like you've pushed yourself really hard. And sometimes you don't get that as much with resistance training, especially if you're taking longer breaks because you want to lift heavier and you're doing more like lower rep ranges instead of higher rep ranges. Okay, Abby, 
Extra question incoming. What do you think of inositol? I have PCOS endo on the pill without breaks. Do you think it would help? Have heard good things, but would love your perspective. Yes, I do. It is a supplement that I generally recommend for people who have PCOS. The way that it works is via improving insulin sensitivity and glycemic control, which can be impacted when you have PCOS. The hard part is that not all PCOS impacts insulin sensitivity. Saying that, the inositol tends not to have many side effects. Um, women that I've had that take it haven't experienced any side effects. And generally, they're not highly um, reported. So you're probably not going to have much of a negative to taking it. Also, it's in things like Monster. Not that I recommend having loads of monster, but just like it's in things as well. Um, so yeah, primarily via insulin sensitivity and improved glycemic control. The most common form of supplementation is myonositol, and people generally take one to sorry one one to four grams as supplementation. Okay, thank you everybody for listening. I hope that was useful. If anyone has any questions about anything, post them in the group, tag us there, tag your coach there. And I will be back later in the week to answer some more questions. These were excellent, thank you very much. Some of them I haven't had before. And again, sorry, but not sorry for the rant at the start. Love you, bye. <laughs>